Hi, it's Susan, and I'm an expert in helping musicians to have better relationships with themselves and with the world. This episode, we get right into the reality versus the fantasy of professional orchestral careers. Daniel Myers was playing with top orchestras, but found the experience deeply unsatisfying in the attitude of the players towards their work and their audiences. Music had been about sharing and community for him, but the further along the professional track he got, the less it became about that. Enjoy. Welcome to today's episode of the Change Your Tune podcast. I'm your host, Susan Eldridge, and I'm really delighted to welcome our guest today, Daniel Myers, who's a non-profit fundraiser. Daniel, good morning. Good morning and uh, good afternoon, Susan. <laughs> good afternoon to you. Well, where are you right now, Daniel, as we speak? So I'm in Minneapolis, Minnesota in the United States. Beautiful. I, I, I'm going to give this a go and see if I can get it right. Go Oh, golfers. Is that right? Is that what... Yes, that's it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that reminds me. Um, I have a friend who lives in Sweden now and works for H&M. And um, I guess H&M has a uh, spoof on collegiate apparel, but it's for Minnesota. It's the Minnesota chipmunks. And they just kind of <laughs> didn't quite get the, I mean, not that gophers are very intimidating, but they didn't quite get it right. So just for anyone who's not from Minneapolis or Minnesota, the Gophers are the, uh, the mascot of the University of Minnesota. And I know that because my wife did grad study there. So, um, oh, wonderful. Yeah, so uh, I know about the Gophers. Um, but enough about the Gophers, Daniel. Uh, can you tell us about your career and your work in nonprofit fundraising? Yeah, so uh, currently I work as the donor relations and annual giving manager at the Epilepsy Foundation of Minnesota, which is a patient advocacy organization supporting people with epilepsy and their caregivers and families. Um, And so I, um, you know, I work with our donors, um, helping to make sure that if they want to support the organization, they know how they can, um, sharing with them the impact of their gifts and and such, um, and then also writing all of our fundraising appeals, the letters that um, that you get in the mail asking for support. That's the sort of thing that I'm writing. So that's what I do here. Um, and I've been um, in this position since March of 2021. And before that, I was working for the University of Chicago um, for the University of Chicago Presents concert series there, doing marketing and fundraising. Um, and that was really my first uh, foray into kind of full-time um, nonprofit work. Um, I'd done some contract work before that, but um, most my main focus before that had been on performance. And was the um, the University of Chicago role, was that something you were particularly interested in because it was a performance, it was live performance and music? Yeah, I'd kind of, um, I mean, that was definitely a draw. Um, and I had, I'd found my way there um, after finishing graduate school, I was um, playing as a member of the Civic Orchestra of Chicago, which is sort of a training arm of the Chicago Symphony, if you're not familiar. And so that was sort of part-time work and I needed to supplement my income. Um, and I was teaching too, doing what a lot of us do when we're freelancers. Um, and so I saw this position open in marketing at the concert series. And I'd done some freelance communications work, so it seemed like a good fit. And um, University of Chicago has a great record, uh, reputation. It was a great concert series. So I applied and was hired, very excited, um, and eventually kind of transitioned with that to full-time and added fundraising work to the marketing communications I was doing. 
So I'd love to dig in. I, I, I'm really curious about the jump from that role into where you are now, but I'm going to save that for later because I want to know, uh, you said you were, were playing with the Civic and that's um, just for anyone who doesn't listen, that's a very, it's a, it's a professional standard orchestra. It's very competitive. Um, can you backtrack even further for that? So how did Daniel first start his life in music and how did he <laughs> all the way at the Civic? <laughs> Well, if we want to talk about how I first started life in music, I think it was piano lessons when I was five and I have a twin sister and we were fired by our piano teacher. So that was that was my start in music. Piano was not uh, not for me or my sister. Um, but then I picked up the bass um, and saxophone when I was in fifth grade, which here in the US, that's when a lot of school music programs start. I'm not sure about elsewhere. Um, and played that all through high school. Um, I started to think that I might want to continue doing that. And I went to a small college in Minnesota called St. Olaf College. Um, Umyaya, if you are in Oli <laughs> listening. Um, and Susan, I'm glad to see you laugh. I don't know if you're familiar with that from Minnesota, but um, oh, it is a strange little like chant. It's a strange little chant. And just for anyone listening, I know you said St. Olaf is a small college, but goodness me, do they have a world-class teaching and learning program in music so they're very like you've been very modest about that but the standard of the teaching and the standard of the graduates that come from that school is is really exceptional well I feel very flattered Susan I mean I definitely loved it um but it's not a school that a lot of people know about so I think I guess maybe I I sell it short sometimes um so I went there and I studied bass performance for my undergraduate degree. Um, and it's a liberal arts college. So even though I have a bachelor in music degree in performance, I still had um, a wide range of courses that I was doing. Um, and then I went to graduate school at DePaul University in Chicago and got a master's in performance, took a year off in between to teach, um, interestingly, beginning violin, which I had never played before, <laughs> and elementary general music through a nonprofit. Um, and then graduate school took me to Chicago, where I auditioned for the Civic Orchestra, and um, and yeah, that's kind of kind of how I got there. And I'd been doing freelancing around um, you know small regional orchestras at the time as well. And like I said, kind of pastiching together um, a living to, to the most that I could. And at that point, what were you hoping? the next thing was going to be for you? Yeah. Um, I'd always been um, aspiring to playing in an orchestra full-time professionally. Um, you know, as a bass player, there's not really dreams of being a soloist or a chamber musician. Um, so that was definitely part of, you know, aspiring for the orchestra. But um, really for me, it was about playing in an orchestra. I love playing bass. I love my instrument. Um, I don't, I'm not one of those people that just loves to spend hours practicing on my own. That wasn't, you know, driving me. I wasn't just looking for that opportunity to do that all day. I was looking to play with a hundred people on stage, massive symphonies. Um, and, and that was really what I was hoping for. And actually St. Olaf, um, my experience there, I think was what really solidified that desire because I'd played in orchestras. I was fortunate to have an orchestra at my public high school. 
Um, and we had, you know, a state orchestra. So I play and played in big ensembles. Um, but at St. Olaf, uh, it was just such a really tight community within the orchestra um, and within the audience too. Um, everyone who would come to concerts um, was a small town where the college was, but people would come from, you know, just locals would come. People would come down from the twin cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul, which are about 45 minutes away um, and people's families. So it was a really close community. And that was what really, what I really loved about um, orchestral music is um, you have a large group of people uh, really investing themselves in something that can be really emotional together um, and creating that experience together with hundreds, maybe even thousands of people in the audience experiencing it together. And just that, that, I don't know, I'm really bad at talking about it because it's just, it feels like something magical when you have that, uh, that like full investment and you have that connection with the audience. It's really special. So that's what I wanted. That's what I was hoping to, to find. Daniel, what I'm hearing so much in your story and what makes total sense for the, for the, the joy and the um, purpose that you find in the work that you're doing now is, is number one, empathy and a love and respect for other people, you know, Christian values or human values, um, tied with this seeking to be part of something greater than yourself that serves something beyond the group. Um, and then also tacked into that telling stories. And like, so that all, that is what you do now. <laughs> um, and that's, that's what has come through the experience, like the, the very connected community at St. Olaf that is they're very, very loyal and, and very well supported. Um, so it, make like that, 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 it makes sense the work you're doing now because these are all the things yeah. coming through this story, but particularly this notion of um, care and respect for others and being, being egoless in the moment of giving to get to, for purpose and that purpose being for making, making a connection and the lives of others better. Am I? Yeah. No, I, th I think I think that is on track. And I think you're explaining myself to me a little <laughs> bit better than I could um, explain it to myself. So yeah. you're helping me gain some insight. Um, yeah, I think that empathy piece that you said, um, that's a word that I used to uh, use a lot when I would be talking with friends, um, especially friends kind of outside of music about why I thought it was so great and so special, um, especially live performance and orchestral performance. Um, and I haven't, um, I don't know, that's been less in my vocabulary recently, maybe because we're going to less fewer concerts right now and they're not live. Um, but yeah, that, that is a big, um, big word for me and big facet. Um, because I think, you know, that's what we can get in, in live performance of, um, if you're listening to something that makes you, you know, feel happy or feel sad or feel stressed, you can share that with another person and, you know, like the person next to you who's listening to it or the person who's on stage with you, if they're really investing in it, you're experiencing that together. And no matter what your background, you know, that you can share that experience and you can connect, um, through that experience. It also uh it makes the music better it makes the 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 connection to the audience more meaningful and also as two individuals making that music we are co-regulating in that moment our our 
whatever your version of sad is and whatever my version of sad is, both have a physiological embodied um, impact inside us. Our hearts do different things. Our nervous system do different things. And that's actually, I've spoken a little bit about this in the podcast, is that is actually what the gift of music is, is in allowing people to co-regulate around emotions at the same time. And what you were saying about this, what you love about the orchestra, which is um, much more than doing solo work, I think is also because so many, particularly um, orchestral musicians, it probably happens in opera too, what they, what they actually really love is striving for perfection in a practice room by themselves. That's really what they love about the whole thing. It's not about performance. It's not about the audience. And then you see that. You, you feel that when you go and see them. You're like, I don't think this would matter if I was here or not. I think the experience would continue. So um, you're coming at that from not from the, the actual love of it for you being living the practice room life, just ignoring the world and doing striving for mastery, but in doing something with that thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I think there's, there's often musicians who struggle with the career part because they really don't want a career in music and because they don't understand what the work to do is or what is the what are the demands of a career in music because it's way beyond playing your instrument proficiently. Um, but yeah. They believe it is and that's what they want to do. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'd love to dig back into how then all of this, empathy, um, people, uh where kind of where was the transition then from that portfolio gigging life that you had in Chicago? Um, yeah, what was going on for you then? Yeah, so um, so like I said, I, I was doing my master's and I was playing in the Civic Orchestra of Chicago, and I graduated. Um, so then, kind of had to you know fill that time, but also um, really needed to get a job and just, you know, make ends meet. Um, and um, at least that was the situation for me. I, I kind of learned through that experience and just with my peers that there were people who I was playing with who they could just focus on the audition and focus on, on the opportunities to play that they wanted to take and not worry about any other work or anything outside of that. Um, but but for me, I had to kind of had to make ends meet. So I was taking every gig that I could. Um, I was taking every audition that I could so that I could hopefully get that full time job. And I was working part time at the concert series at the University of Chicago. Um, so I was doing a lot and that was kind of overwhelming. Um, and I was also kind of outside of the civic orchestra, I'd started freelancing more, um, playing with regional orchestras and even some kind of major orchestras that I think a lot of people would see as like the end goal if you're searching for a career as an orchestral musician. Um, and I really wasn't finding that connection with um, the ensembles that I was playing with, not just like the connection between myself and the musicians I was playing with. I mean, that was something that I was, I was missing, especially when you're, when you're freelancing and you're going from orchestra to orchestra and you're traveling from city to city, it's really hard to develop that. So I was definitely missing that. Um, 
But even more was that connection with the audience and that focus on the audience. Like, like you were saying, Susan, of like that focus on what is the experience for the people who are here to hear us? Um, because that's what I cared about. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, you said, Susan, that, that the performances are more meaningful when you're focused on kind of what that, that interaction, that interplay between the ensemble and the, and the music that's being made and the people in the audience who are there to hear it. Um, they're more meaningful when you're really focused on that rather than just technical excellence. Um, and I never heard or very rarely heard musicians I was playing with in these like major orchestras talk about, you know, what's the experience that the person in the audience is going to have? Are they going to, are they going to be breathless in this grand pause after this like huge moment? Um, are they going to be kind of like moved to like literally leap out of their seats because of how, you know, triumphant something sounds? Um, it was just, you know, there's a sforzando on the page and it needs to be a strong sforzando or this is how this composer does sforzandos. And I think those are important things, but it, important only in the context of the people who are hearing them. Um, so I was missing that and I was missing the connection and, and it also, also just kind of feeling like the people I was playing with didn't care that much. Uh, one of my favorite anecdotes is someone um, who was a principal player showing up five minutes before the concert, like running into the dressing room and like, oh, I'm gonna shave and then run up on stage like five minutes before the concert. And, um, and not in a like, oh crap, I'm in a huge rush, but like, oh no, no, like just got time. And then just leaving right after. Um, it was just a job for a lot of them, which I understand. I, I, I'm realizing in my adult life that I don't think you can expect um, something that someone does full-time to not be just a job some of the time because we all have like full lives and other things. Um, but it was not at least satisfying for me. And, you know, when you're working so hard, that was the thing that was motivating for me was what I imagined it to be. And the experience I had in college of playing in orchestra, that was the motivator of having that experience again, like every day for the rest of my life. Um, and so that was pushing me through the really hard work of spending hours practicing on my own, which I didn't really enjoy the stress of auditions, the stress of trying to take every gig that I could and every audition and pay for it all. Um, so I just kind of got burnt out and decided I needed to stop auditioning. I was just, my head was not in the right spot. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, so I was glad I was working part-time and still within the arts, within music and could kind of focus a little bit on that connection piece and on the audience. I was working in marketing. I'm talking to the audience. I'm trying to tell them why they should come to this concert or why it matters um, or what's significant about this music. Um, and not just, you know, it's important because it was written at this time, but like it's significant because it'll move you in this way um, or it'll just leave you speechless. Uh, that's what I try to talk about in marketing. I love Aubrey Bergauer's, um, just everything that she talks about, because I feel like it's about that, about talking about what the actual connection point is. Um, so that's kind of, you know, I was doing those at the same time and I was getting to focus more on connection with people through the communications work. And so I decided, you know, maybe this is where I'll lean more into because I, I don't know that it's in performance. My heart's not in it and it's making, it's making orchestral music 
kind of painful for me. It was making me not like it. Um, and it's something that was so meaningful to me. I didn't want that. I didn't want to become super jaded as a 26 year old and hate orchestral music for the rest of my life. Um, yeah, sorry, that was kind of a rambling story, but uh, I hope I traced a little bit of an arc through there. Daniel, thank you. Thank you for sharing because it's not, it's not easy to talk about uh, our dreams, achieving our dreams and then discovering that it's not true. Basically, or or yeah, only that's you know that it's um, and how that makes you feel, how that makes us feel, because you're like, well, I've done, but I've done the work, I've done the work, I've got the debts to show it, um, like I've done the thing, I've done everything I was told to do above and beyond everybody else that was competing for the same thing, and. And oh wow, this is it, you know. Yeah, because I think it kind of makes. That. Yeah, I think it makes you kind of question yourself too. Um, and I think this is kind of a buzzy word that we hear a lot now, but I think it's a, an important word that someone may correct me. And you know, it's not maybe it's not right for the situation, but it's the word that's coming to mind of like kind of feeling a little bit gaslit in that um, you have this great opportunity you're um you know like you said like you're kind of reaching your dreams and people are congratulating you they're so proud of you um your peers are you know congratulating you and like you know that's what they're hoping to get to too soon so you feel like you should be really just like on top of the world and so when you're not and when it's just when it's not just that you you're not but also it kind of feels a little bit dashed of like this is what I was hoping for. And it's, it's not that it's like really not that. Uh, I think I kind of felt sometimes and still struggle with this. Sometimes I'm uh, talking with people who are still friends of mine who are still playing in orchestras are auditioning, um, like questioning my own feelings about it of like, which seems crazy. Cause like what you feel about it is what you feel about it. But um, yeah. And I think um, also what you haven't, what you haven't mentioned in that last little bit, but I think is so true is the guilt that we then feel of, but I have the thing that everybody else. <laughs> yeah. Why do I feel so bad about it? And I think. Why, why am I crying? Why don't I want to get up and do this every day? Why, why, why have my, why has my digestive system stopped? Why am I, why is my eczema flaring up? Which is all. Yeah. Is your body pulling the brakes on the life support system from inside because you're not paying attention to the fact that there's this disconnect and trying to examine that? Yeah, I, I still feel um, I feel really anxious when I see my old teachers. Um, and I just saw one of them on on Monday. Um, I so I started before moving back to Minnesota a few years ago. I started an ensemble that the big goal was really to have an ensemble where um, that facilitates an environment where the musicians are really engaged and not just focused on technical proficiency, but like, what are we really creating out of this and what are we creating together? Um, it's called unsupervised because it's a conductorless orchestra. There's no supervisor. Um, and 
we had a performance as part of this contemporary music festival in Chicago on Monday. Um, and I ran into one of my old teachers who was playing in an ensemble that was coming right after us. And um, he asked if I was playing now. And I just, I, I didn't know how to say like, no, and I'm not trying to do that anymore. Um, and I feel really bad. I didn't stay for the concert because I didn't know how to talk to him afterward if I ran into him. And um, I, I don't know, it's, it's really hard um, to like feel like someone who, um, who worked really hard with you and you don't know how to tell them that you kind of, you're not doing that. Daniel, it just, what, what all of this kind of speaks to is, and going back to the, the colleague who you, principal player who you saw sort of, you know, dash in and to think that those players once will have had the relationship that you had to their work, right? They once will have, it will have been everything for them. They wouldn't have done it. They wouldn't have got there. They wouldn't have tolerated everything that you have to tolerate to be an elite performer in any field, right? So once they were you and then something happens to them along the way, that they become somebody else. Yeah. And that thing that happens to them is, um, is, is it's, it's not, it's, it's being in a high performance, elite performance environment with none of the psychological support to be able to manage and thrive in that. Mm -hmm. So what happens is it becomes either lowercase t or capital T trauma workplace trauma through shaming and humiliation and failure and then they switch off as a recover as a as a protection mechanism and it becomes the job because they can't they don't have tools to cope with the feelings that are in them when they're doing the job and um, it looks like not caring but it's actually a protective mechanism because there is so much hurt going on and what trauma does is it shuts down curiosity in people and then that becomes that I'm just going to walk in five minutes beforehand mm -hmm. it's just going to be a job because that's what trauma does in the brain it actually changes the way the brain function shuts shuts down that functioning and then one of the adaptive responses that happens to trauma we know it's fight flight or flee sorry fight fight flight or freeze is exactly what you have just described is you saw a teacher and you've experienced i'm sorry this has all gone very kind of very psychological i'm not, not sure. my partner is a therapist so okay. this is like i'm like oh you must be a therapist too no 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 no, no. i'm just i'm a very very um very very keen but very amateur psychologist so what happened your trauma response when you saw that teacher was you froze it was at that moment of like you're a very articulate intelligent person and the trauma response in you was to shut down like i'm going to play dead <laughs> then like the antelope is getting chased by the lion so it freezes 
and plays dead and the lion turns around, the teacher walked away and you got up and started to shudder again and flee to get away from. So that's like a trauma response to all of the micro humiliations and all of the, all of the stuff that is um, really damaging to so many of us through our training and through our attempts to build a career that connects us through using music as a bridge to connect us to others. But the system is not set up for that to happen. It's set up to higher, faster, uh, um, faster, slower, louder, softer. You want more, you want more sting on the Sforzando instead of the Sforzando needs to be more startling from the audience because they're currently before that in eight measures before that they're in, they're reminiscing and they're melancholy and this Sforzando is the is the return of the triumphant, you know, hero. So it must startle them out of that reverie. And you go, oh, okay, well then I know how to, I, I can use my body to make that sound. You don't need to tell me, you know, um, so the whole, all of this coming back to the fact that we don't have systems and expertise to cope with our feelings. Yeah. Well, I, think, um, I think so much of our training and I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I think it's kind of more conservatory, conservatory training, um, is I think it treats uh, treats musicians. So it treats us like technicians. Um, and the conductor is the one who's the real, the real artist. Um, and we're just there to execute. And so I think, you know, that's what most of us get from at least university, if not before that, is just treated as a, a technician. And there's a, there are some people who, like you were saying earlier, they just, love they love that striving for perfection that is what motivates them and that's what they want and that's what they're pursuing in their career um and that's really great and i think there are others who learn that to want that because that's what they're treated to to do is just be a technician um but i don't think and i'm glad that you i mean i <laughs> um you have a little bit of trauma from like performance you know i sometimes I have a hard time having that perspective of what my colleagues were, what their life was and their motivations were 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and that there's something that has changed for that. Um, so I'm glad that you re reminded me of that. Um, Cause I do, and this is one of the things that I like hoped to get by moving into fundraising. Um, I do believe that we can have ensembles and orchestras that do professional orchestras that are focused on the audience experience and where the musicians do feel like they're kind of a collaborative partner with the conductor and um, where they feel inspired to really give their all and not just be a technician. Um, and I think it's an environment change. And um, I hope, you know, I work in health advocacy now, um, and I still love it because I'm, I'm getting to build connections with people. Um, but I do hope to move back to the arts because I think, I think there's a lot on the administrative side that we can do um, to kind of bring that connection for the musicians. Um, like in fundraising, I think, I think some musicians and unions will be resistant to it, but we can find a way to encourage, you know, 
let's connect you with the people who are in the audience. And we can do that through donors first, but let's just have like a conversation just about the pieces of music that you love and kind of remember why we love it. And then you see that person in the audience at, at a concert and you connect with them afterward. And there's that reminder and, and bringing that together across the ensemble then. Um, and I think that there are ways that we can, ho I hope that there are ways that we can kind of bring that inspiration back to performance. Cause I do think it makes the performances more meaningful for the audience, especially the first time audience members, you know, if they've never been to an orchestra concert before and they just see you like, you know, shredding away, but not really engaged. It's cool, but it doesn't have that emotional impact that's gonna keep you coming back. It's like, oh, that's technically impressive. <laughs> that's not the sort of thing that makes you buy a 60, 70, 80, $90 ticket on a regular basis. Um, so that's, I do think that we can get back to that because um, I do think that's why most of us start doing it. It's not just because we, we love making sure that we have a perfectly in tune E up in thumb position or something like that. Well, the question is why? Why does it matter that you have a perfectly in tune? Yeah. Like what is the musical reason that that matters to the, to the, uh, to, to the story that we're telling and the, the circle that we're creating between the audience and the musicians to be responsive? So, like, there's nothing wrong with having a perfect we should we should have a perfectly in tune e but it's got to be for a reason it's just that it that yeah. is not enough yeah or maybe it's not perfect. perfectly in tune yeah, and matter. maybe there's a reason for that it's because right. it has an, an effect on the audience. it needs a bit more uh yeah it needs a bit more um yeah tension uh yeah i think this is um yeah, this is, it, 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 I totally agree with all the points that you're making. And I think one of the challenges for organisations, though, is because the system is set up to only look at the, at the, as, at the human as a technician from a performer, not the human as a human, like that the only way to get into an orchestra is to it, it's pretty surpass the audition process, but the audition is one measure of your ability to succeed in the demands of the job because the demand... Mm -hmm have changed because it's all this stuff now um so we had musicians in orchestras who've i've done the right thing i'm the you know i'm the best damn tri-state viola player there is um and i got into this orchestra because they measured my viola playing and now you're asking me to talk to a stranger so we've got a lot of musicians in orchestras for whom this the changing demands of the work we, we can't we have to prepare them and we have to work with them and in any kind of, um, it's almost like a reconciliation of, of the, the demands of the role have changed. You can't just suddenly tell someone their job has changed and expect them to be happy about it. So it's also in that preparation part of why it's changing, why it matters, what is, and primarily for them what is in it for them by adopting a new way of approaching their work. Mm -hmm. That this, mm -hmm. you know, and and also looking at the intake mechanism. How do we say that? Like, what what is the audition process and the onboarding process for new players that prepares them for the expectations of the demands of the job as it is within our ensemble? And also, even even looking at, you know, maybe there's a point that, like, it's a pipeline, and at this point, these people after the pipe, we're going to let them matriculate. Retire. Yeah. 
and we're actually only going to look at at intake or we're looking if they've got you know a, a young ensemble a pre pre-professional ensemble that the work is done with that pre-professional ensemble because we also if we're going to change the demands of the job have to expect that there will be people who who are not going to do that because it's not what they signed up for. And, and the organisation, not just the orchestra, because the orchestra is part of a bigger organisation, must be respectful of that and find a way mm-hmm. still to be able to complete the duties of the job successfully that they signed on for. So it's, again, coming back to being able to listen to people, have a different yeah. conversation and yeah. and and come to come to come come to come to a way where hopefully everybody's getting most of what they need, but not everybody's mm-hmm. everything. Yeah, and it's definitely complex. Um, I I certainly agree with you, and I think um, I think there are small things too, though, that we can think about that um, you know just having the personnel manager in, just make an introduction between, you know, the musicians out in the lobby. Oh, hi, this is a, someone who, a subscriber for 20 years. Um, just wanted to introduce you. There's like a 10 second conversation of like, oh, I loved the concert. This was, this part of it really just like, just got me here and got me like lifting myself out of my chair. Like just a 10 second conversation might remind the musician too, um, of that audience aspect. So um, I think when you're, when we're asking for bigger things, definitely, you know, if we're asking musicians to, to dedicate time to um, being out in the lobby and talking to people, um, you, you don't want to pull them out of the, you, you want them, you want to enable them to empower them to be able to have the conversations that they want to have and feel comfortable doing that. Um, but I guess I also, I guess I just feel wary of treating all of those interactions as, um, you know, it doesn't have to be a big thing. It can be a small thing that brings us back to the the reason that we're here making music together. And Daniel, that big thing might be for the musician, um, because this is like happens everywhere to every musician ever. Someone in the audience says, oh, it was amazing. I loved it. It was just, it was so great. And the musician says, oh, but I missed my entry. Oh, but the E, oh, but the constant, but, but somebody else did something wrong, right? Isn't that exactly what happens is the audience member reaches out with loving gratitude to say, this made me feel something. And we just throw it back in their face with a catalog of technical errors. Yeah, because that's so, what we're trying to. Because that's what so we're that's the only to thing do. that matters. Yeah, because music education is primarily um, it's error detection. It's being delivered as error detection rather than student-led inquiry and embracing the joy of imperfection because it's mm-hmm. not perfection. It's about connection. Um, but even if even if we helped the musicians to be able to not throw it back at the audience member and grind their teeth with all the stuff that's going on in their head that's like the catalogue of stuff that went wrong, but out of their face just simply comes, thank you, I'm so glad that you enjoyed it. Like even if we could get to that, um, what that might do for musicians and their relationship with 
um, perfection and failure. You know? mm-hmm. This is, I, I'm so, Daniel, I'm so excited to hear that you, you still care, like you care so much, you have so much love for the art form and for the power of the art form. And you said that this is, you, you know, the big, the big arc for you is to get, to get back to that. But I'd love to sort of just come back to the work you're doing now mm-hmm. with the not-for-profit you're doing now. What are the, what are, what's making you great at that job that is, that comes from your, from you being a musician? Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, it's basically communications work. Um, and I mean, that is what I'm talking about with music too. And why I wanted, why I was motivated in that is communicating something with someone, um, and empathy. I think being able to put myself, um, on the other side of a letter, you know, on the reader's side, um, or just on the other side of the services we offer, you know, thinking about, um, a parent whose kid was recently diagnosed with epilepsy and, you know, why are they coming to us? What is meaningful to them about it? Um, And if they're grateful, which is usually when we're trying to kind of connect with them, where does that gratitude fly? Where does that stem from? And then, you know, writing a letter um, that really tries to connect on that level Um, or even just, I'm thinking of um, a letter we did just a month ago. It was um, about, it it was signed by one of our board members who's a mom of a teenage daughter with epilepsy talking about having to train her daughter's school in what to do if her daughter has a seizure at school because uh, there's no mandated training to be prepared for that. Um, So it's on the parents to make sure that the school is ready. Um, and I'm not a parent. I don't have a child with epilepsy. Um, but through talking with, um, our board member who signed the letter, um, trying to come to some understanding and understanding that this is something that every parent of a child with epilepsy in Minnesota can relate to just sharing that experience through the letter. And it's, you know, a point of connection um, focusing on those those ways that we can kind of build community even through like a piece of mail but you feel like you're not alone because you're reading about this experience that someone else has had um, and you know this we're in it together sort of mentality um, and I think being able to put myself in those different positions that are not experiences I've had is something that I've learned through through music um, And I do think I'm fortunate through the music education that I had. Um, It did focus a lot on kind of placing ourselves in what's the experience of the audience. Um, But I do think that is one of the big things. And then, I mean, I think a lot of musicians who do other things talk about, you know, the, the grit and, you know, just continuing to think of ways to, or look for ways to improve um, attention to detail you know, I'm writing things. I got to make sure there aren't typos that go out. Um, I think those are other things that have come from being a musician that um, have en- enabled me to to do the work that I do now. 
Um, but I think that empathy piece and that um, kind of ability or at least desire to focus on connection um, is what has really made me, at least I hope successful in what I'm doing now. I'm a bass player, so I never, I'm, I'm, I don't want to be in the front saying like, look at me, I'm super successful. Or the um, in the back, just like, I think, don't notice my mistakes. I think we're the same musicians, Daniel, because I'm like uh, hardcore, I'm the best fourth horn player. Like that's my <laughs> play because I want to uplift everybody else. And I know, yes. you know, I've played principal plenty of times and I know what it's like to play principal when you're just never sure that the bottom's secure or whether it's tuning or entries or, you know, blend chord balance or whatever. Um, so I know, you know, I can play principal and I know what it means to have a, like, rock solid fourth horn down there and that's what I love doing because I just I want to anchor and let other people step forward and uplift them I don't that's not where the joy is for me the joy is like mm -hmm. yeah you don't you don't even I got your back you didn't even know how hard it was for that like pedal f sharp in the mala but damn I delivered on that thing and you guys sounded great <laughs> So, and maybe it comes from where we sit, Daniel, in the orchestra, where we're, we're the back row, right? Aren't we? You're the back row, I'm the back row, and we get to see the team. We get to see it all play out in front of us. So maybe it's also something to do. Our love of that uplift of others it comes from having sat for decades in the back row yeah. of the yeah. orchestra. There's, there's nothing I love more than watching, um, you know, the nonverbal communication that happens between sections. Um, and just, you know, those moments where, um, you know, your colleagues are making eye contact. And even if it's a mistake <laughs> of like that, like, I know what happened there. Like, it's all right, we're all, we're all here together um, and like moving forward. Uh, but yeah, that vantage point that you get from the back is, um, I wouldn't pass it up. I, I would not, if I, if I was a violinist, I would want to be in the back of the <laughs> want to be in the front. And it's not, I mean, it's partially the spotlight that I, I don't want, I don't want that pressure, but it's also just that, um, you know, seeing every, all of this together, um, that we're, that we're creating. Yeah. And being on a riser too, you're on risers and we're on risers. So we're not, we're not on the floor seeing the backs of people's heads. We're seeing, seeing the whole body. So, and I think that's a really great kind of um, sort of coming back to your origin story, which you were talking at, at, at like it's an that's a time it's an Olaf about community and the strength of the community, and the what you can achieve through shared shared purpose through strong community connection, and that's like that's what you were seeking, but you couldn't find as a player at that point in time. It's what you do now as a facilitator between um, helping donors achieve the dreams of using their yeah. resources to help make change in the lives of others um, and helping share the stories of the others whose lives have been changed through that to be connected with each other um, for greater good. So, like, it, yeah, it all, it all ties in together. <laughs> yeah. It feels, I mean, there are a lot of things about the work that I do now that just feels so different, obviously. Um, but then there are all these moments that are like, Oh yeah, this is what I was looking for for there. We had this last weekend, we had a, a big fundraising walk and we had uh, 700 people um, all in a stadium together, all because they have epilepsy or they know someone who has epilepsy and they want to support each other. And 
it's not an orchestra. It's very different than an orchestra. Um, but that was what I loved about it and what I still love about orchestras. Um, I play in a community orchestra. Um, I not since COVID, but still occasionally freelance when there's something that I really want to do. Um, and, but yeah, it's that connection. I, I don't know if I expected to find it in the ways that I've found it outside of, of orchestra. And, you know, it's still something I'm always seeking. It's harder during COVID to find that connection for sure. Um, but it's out there. It's so... Uh, I mean, I can see it in your, like, I can see that, I, I can see your eyes shining when you speak about the, the experience that you're having when you can truly connected with others to do something beyond yourself. And yet, like you said, I'm, and, and I would echo that I'm so glad that you have, that you didn't know that you could find that outside music, but you have, and that you, that the, that the industry is changing in a way that you, when you do choose to bring your gifts back in, to the world of um, classical music and orchestras that that the the it's ready for this yeah. thinking and to be moving this way so uh, daniel thank you so much for sharing with such honesty and vulnerability um, feelings is one of my favorite things to talk about so thank you so much for being willing to go there and just um, share your experience i know it's going to be really meaningful for others to hear well thank you susan i know um it is cathartic to talk about, so thank you for the opportunity. No, oh, we all love a good we all love a good talk about ourselves, and sometimes. A, but <laughs> I'll just put there are a couple of things that we've mentioned. Um, if folks want to check out, I'll put those links in the show notes. Um, but otherwise, Daniel, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening and for making it all the way to the end. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please help me share these stories by sharing this with others. You can post about it on your socials, on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, or you can leave me a rating and a review about this podcast. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Facebook or Instagram at Notable Values. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you next time.